First on the Tee in Season 3, Episode 1 of Grow the Grind, the PGA Tour's course king and coaching legend, Jeff Smith. Yeah, we always seem to be looking for answers. I feel like we got the right guy for some answers in this podcast. He gives us a different voice and experience, one that we really haven't had as a guest throughout our first three seasons. So it's kind of cool to bring this one out right away. And I would say something that we talked about that I thought was very interesting was how all different golfers have different unique parts of their swing. And in order to make that swing great, you have to have the right matchups. And that's something Jeff has totally figured out. Yeah, I haven't. I don't got to get it. But I tried to, right? And I think that if you listen to this full podcast, you're going to gain a different perspective from him and maybe a better understanding, maybe some more patience, maybe a couple nuggets, right? There's some good stuff in this, right, Ellie? I would definitely agree with that. There are some parts in here where I was confused myself, but I thought it was mind-blowing when he said that the golf swing isn't that complicated because sometimes it feels that way. Hopefully this is an indication of all the great things we have coming in Season 3. Because starting with Victor Hovland's coach is a pretty solid start. All right, buckle up if you're driving out to your next golf tournament. All these people in the Midwest trying to find warmer weather here in the spring. Who knows where you're going? Maybe you're driving to Indy. Maybe you're driving out to Tennessee, Kentucky. I don't know, but I know we can keep you a little bit of company here. So what do you say, Al? Should we get this thing started? That's right. Here it is. Season 3, Episode 1. The PGA Tour's Course King with Jeff Smith on Grow the Grind. No better way to kick off Season 3 of Grow the Grind than with the man sitting next to us right now. Jeff Smith is without question one of the biggest coaching names in the golf world, and his schedule is packed with Ryder Cups, College All-Americans, lessons online and at the range, all while traveling around the country to manage a gold standard coaching stable of stars. In between his time with some of the PGA Tour players, he carved out a window to record this episode at his home teaching spot, Spring Creek Ranch in Memphis, Tennessee. Coach, you've been grinding all day and maybe for weeks. Let's get that energy back up. We have been pumped for this episode that kicks off an insane season for us. Thank you so much for coming on with us today. Thank you guys for having me. How are you feeling? You all right? Yeah, I'm good. Not without a little bit of drama here, Allie. (laughs) We had an SD card failure, but we're managing, right? We're moving. Yes, we are. Yes. So yesterday you were at the players, which saw some wild weather. We had fans belly sliding in the fairways and guys like Justin Thomas hitting 185-yard wedges, followed by 195-yard five woods on back-to-back holes. How crazy was it out there last week? <laughs> well, luckily for me, I didn't have to hit a shot, but um, it was. I've been to hundreds of PGA Tour events, and it was the weirdest one by by a mile. There's so many stops and starts um, playing. A second round on Sunday, my mind is just like, I don't know what day it is. I don't, are we supposed to go to the golf course, not go to the golf course? So um, I I was confused all week. The players, I'm sure, were, um, you know, really out of their element. So um, you you throw in the wind, you throw in the, the, the rain, you throw in the coldest temperatures I've ever experienced, probably in Florida. Um, Yeah, it was, it was a wild week. Yeah, Spring Creek here is a little warmer. We're in the bay where you do a lot of your lab work, right? And I assume you weren't one of those guys running down the fairway on your stomach, were you? <laughs> were you tempted at all? Or? No, 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 no. I'm not built for that. It just it just wrapped up behind us. Uh, Cam Smith won it, and you know he made it interesting in the last two there, made a great birdie, and then decided to run one into the water. So After hitting into the pines. Right, you know? so, hey, you know what? It, it shouldn't have ended any other way, not without drama. Give those fans something. Yes. Um, and I know that, you know, midway into it, I started to panic because we had planned this for a while to drive out here and it isn't a short little window there for us. You know, that's a, that's a bit of a hike. And we did come for you because we're very appreciative of the fact <laughs> that somebody like yourself is sitting down on grow the grind. It's very cool for us. Yes. But I said, Hey, Jeff, you're going to make it. You know, <laughs> I got the other girls coming. My, you know, my whole family came down and we we're like, make sure, make sure. What do you think? And I was really panicking there that you might not be back here in time. Yeah, for our listeners who don't know, let's stay in your PGA stable for a minute. Who on tour are you currently working with, and how do you balance your time and events with multiple players? Uh, yeah, this this year's been a bit tricky. Um, I had uh, three players graduate from the Corn Ferry Tour last year, so basically I have three rookies on tour this year. So uh, Davis Riley, 
Brandon Wu and Dylan Wu are my three rookies alongside guys that I've been coaching for a while now on the PGA Tour, Aaron Wise, Patrick Rogers, and uh, Victor Hovland. So I have six on tour, and um, it's it's tricky getting them all organized and getting time with, with each of them. And, you know, some weeks you have them all in the field and, and you're running around crazy, and then other weeks, you know, this past week was – a little, little easier for me with only three guys in the field. So, you know, I just got to be organized with my time. And, and, you know, I'm appreciative of any time those guys are organized and as well so we can get things done. What do they need from you? It's different week to week, you know, um, and it's different player to player. Uh, some guys we have very specific things we're working on, maybe changing in their full swing. Um, some guys we're working on something specific in their putting or their short game. Um, oftentimes it's just, um, you know, day-to-day structuring practice to make sure that we're getting reps in meaningful areas of their game. Uh, a lot of strategy conversations going on. We have a lot of analytics involved with how we're sort of mapping out a strategy for the week and how, to, how we're going to play the course. And um, so it's, it's a little bit different, a little bit of everything every week. What was the conversation <clears throat> surrounding those two finishing holes with some of those guys coming into it? I mean, it's it's really all based on the conditions. You know, you, you have a, a day like the third round where it seems like it's impossible to hit the green on 17. Um, I think in that there was there was a, definitely a good wave and a bad wave. And luckily for me, all three of my guys, I felt like we're in the good wave. But the guys in that second wave, I mean, I think 40 players came through there at one point and 20 of them hit it in the water. So these are the, these are the best players in the world. And uh, 18 is just a punishing hole anytime it's playing, you know, into the wind, even not in the wind because um, the club you're hitting off that tee uh, is tricky. Uh, a lot of my guys have a left-to-right ball flight, so the driver doesn't really fit there. So they'll have to drop down the three-wood to try to keep it out of the trees or out of the right rough. And then that leaves a long second shot. So. Anytime you throw in, you know, wind or cold temperatures and the ball's not going far, far, I mean, 17 and 18 are probably two of the toughest, you know, finishing holes in all of golf. Yeah, it was pretty cool to watch it today. Yeah, and I also once heard you mention that you went from a Las Vegas dome with a track man grinding out eight to eights to standing on a range in majors between Tiger and Rory. When you reflect back on how that all happened, what are you most proud of? Wow, that's that's a great question. Um, I guess I'm probably the most proud of the the impact I've had on you know some of these players. Um, you take a guy like Aaron Wise, who I've coached basically since last year of high school, and been lucky enough to to work with him and watch his success. You know, go on to win an NCAA championship and then. Um, come out and win at basically every level on the Corn Ferry Tour, as a rookie on the PGA Tour, Rookie of the Year. Um, so just seeing their sort of continued success. Um, you know, a guy like Victor Hovland was, I think, 27th or 28th in the world when we started started together, and now he's climbed to number three in the world. So um, just seeing, I, I guess I'm most proud of, you know, the success of all the players that I've been able to spend time with. Yeah, yeah. that's fair. Yeah, there's a lot of success from all those players. <laughs> you say that you have learned more from the good players on how to coach than probably any other influence. What specifically have you learned, and how can we all benefit from that? Hmm. The things that I've learned that have benefited me the most in watching great players is the things that they do instinctually, um, something that they may not necessarily be deliberately focused on but when when they have to hit a particular shot um how they instinctually do that and then when i ask them to describe to describe what they did there sometimes i'm blown away with like how simple it is for them to do the things that they're doing hitting some of the shots that are so difficult yeah i I say that all the time my players have taught me way more about golf than i've those are the things we're looking for we want all those tips we want those (laughs) tricks And it's maybe not be that it's not that easy, you know. I think you recently were posting about just how your mind needs to work uh, when you're standing on a tee box or when you're looking at a shot. How you can shape it visually through through a strong mindset, and I think that might be what you're describing. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's just having a high level of trust in what you do. Um, I have players that know that they can hit a certain shot basically under any kind of conditions, and to watch them kind of go to that under pressure um, is it's rewarding as a coach because it's it's kind of the things that you work on and practice that you know some it's not you know exciting or sexy or anything like that you know everybody wants to bomb the driver you know launch it at 15 with no spin on it and watch it fly all day and then watch them get on a hole like 18 at sawgrass and hit a low sort of heel cut you know driver into the fairway where they're taking you know maybe spinning it a little bit more than they normally would just to get it in into play and so these guys instinctually are so good they can you know they can do things like that but your time is is tough because you you, they don't have a lot of time with you i assume because you're getting pulled in a lot of different directions so how do you find time to be creative like that and develop those shots within like the structure of a any given lesson is that something that you implemented along the way or do you just get to that point with players where you feel they've grooved the swing that you think works best for them so now it's time to try to like really stretch ourselves into new areas Again, I think it's a little bit different for every player. Um, some players I've worked with have come to me and said, listen, we need an, an overhaul here. We need to kind of rebuild my swing. And, I mean, these are guys that got to the PGA Tour level. So, Are you going to share names with us on, on you know, this? The first, so, like, Patrick Rogers is someone I worked with for, for four years now. And you're talking about one of the most decorated college players of all time. And... You know, he, he always has a, a growth mindset. I want to get better. You know, I want to get better. I want to I win tournaments. I want to win majors. And so, you know, a guy like that <clears throat> sees some deficiencies in his game or his swing, and he comes to me and says, hey, what's it going to take, like, to, to be a world-class ball striker? To Do you remember what it was that was that he felt was holding him back? Yeah, yeah. His, you know, his swing had gotten uh, away from him a bit from the time period that he left college and was in the professional ranks. Um, he got into some, some, some uncharacteristic swing, you know, moves that, that he had not really made in most of his career, but, um, swing got very, very short swing, got very kind of stood up. And then there was a lot of sort of tilt back and hang back in the downswing to try to hit it up in the air. And it just didn't produce very consistent results, especially with the driver. And um, hmm. it took us, you know, probably a year of structure, restructuring his backswing to where he understood it. He could do it under pressure. He could do it in competition. And then since then, it's been just a level of refinement, you oh. know, in and, and every part of the game, really. You just <clears throat> mentioned when you saw Cam Smith swing on 18. What did you say? I don't. I think I said it looks weird. Like I don't know if it was the angle that the video was being shot, but it just looked weird to me. And you said he had absolutely no tilt whatsoever. Oh yes, I said that it didn't look like he had any tilt in his swing. It looked like he was standing straight up. <laughs> Which <laughs> to like, me, what? as a coach who's not who knows nothing, okay, let's be honest about who you're sitting next to right <laughs> now. Okay, I'm a basketball guy who's trying to use athleticism to figure out how to get my daughters where they were. Up until recently, Allie finally has a coach, Adam Sacramento, who's going to be a huge for her along the way. Yes. And I, I remember one of the first things he said to Lucy, who's seven, she's like, he's like, well, dude, why you got her like, like laid down like that? Why so much tilt, you know? <laughs> and so f- because I felt like it was a requirement to get up underneath a golf ball, and hit it high and so when you say that it's just like again it just shows me how far we have to come as parents who are trying to get our kids in in the right direction and we might be creating a lot of bad habits if a guy like you know your guys are doing that getting into that position where they're like adapting their swing and making these corrections because i don't know if it's just they're reeling for something different or what so it's kind of inspiring to hear that so what what was the fix um just you know mostly all backswing work so getting him to turn a bit more uh turn his pelvis a bit more getting a bit deeper hand path toward the top of the backswing from there the clubs begin to shallow pretty naturally and then once he felt that an athlete like that feels the club shallowing or moving behind them they know not to tilt they know there's not going to be able to line that up down by the ball so just kind of restructuring the backswing 
um, sort, sort of knocked over a set of dominoes that, that started that chain reaction. Let's say we walked on the range right now. We started a lesson and your brain starts moving. We already know what separates you as a coach. It's your ability to take a ton of information in quickly, process it, and make a decision on the changes the player needs to make to improve. How long does it take you to define a player's root cause? Generally, I can see it within seconds. Um, I mean, it, I've just looked at so many golf swings and so many different matchups of different players <clears throat> that I can generally get the cause and effect. And, you know, looking at a swing, if I, if I slow it down or look at it on my phone in slow motion, I can, I can generally see it in, you know, just a few seconds. There's, you know, golf's really not that difficult. Um, golf swing is not really that, that difficult, to be, to be honest. We make it a bit more difficult than it probably needs to be. Um, but you bring up a great point, you know, getting to root cause is the, it's the whole ball game because I see a lot of players who are damaged, uh, by a lot of trial and error. And, uh, sometimes on, you know, sometimes by a coach, sometimes on their own, like, you know, I, I see plenty of players that are out here on the driving range today, just filming their own swing, trying different things and not really understanding they may be changing things because they don't cosmetically like the way that it looks, but from a functionality standpoint, it's, it's that move is actually serving them well. Um, and so that's that's kind of a little bit of a dangerous game of of just going out and trying to change things without a lot of direction and, and really knowing what you're doing. But I can usually get to it pretty quickly. Would you say uh, that club face control is one of the most common issues for players? Yeah, no, no question about it. At the at the end of the day, there's a ball flight that's created by a relationship of your club face to your club path, and the best players in the world can control that relationship better than all of us. So what's the most common root cause? Uh, grip? Uh, Could it be grip? Could it be just the takeaway? I mean, when you, when you start diagnosing and really digging into a player, because, like, Allie, think about what you've done this year. <laughs> did you have a grip change? Yes. Did you, have, did you start changing the takeaway? Yeah. Are you a little different at the top? Like, how many things yes. do you think There's have happened? Why? Multiple. Because why? Because my, my swing was out of place. It was in a horrible position. I just needed a reset. That's a lot <laughs> to do, right? In five months, all of those things. So is there, yeah. is there something that you like to – do you tend to really focus on, you know, set up first, obviously. You're looking at a grip just to see what the grip's doing to the club face at the top of the swing. I'm just curious, like, in all the years, how many guys, how many people – so Jeff, tour, thousands, five thousand guys. It, it depends on the level of player that you're talking about. Like I'm, I'm quicker to change an amateur grip, um, and almost never change a tour player's grip. So, you know, they've hit millions of shots with, you know, their hands on the club a certain way. So they've learned to manage the club face based on those feels. And when you, when you change a tour player's grip, I mean, you can start chaos. And so. Generally, you know, I've been around players who aim the club face all over the place. Some of them are wide open at setup. Some of them are closed at setup. Some are open at the top. Some are closed at the top. It's it's not just trying to get everybody to their hands to look a certain way on the club and their club face look a certain way at the top. There's a lot of things going on in a golf swing. Uh, without getting too technical here, we love the technical. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you know, basically when you put your hands on the club, it's moving because you're applying force to the, to the handle of the club. And when you apply a force a certain way, you're going to cause rotational torques. And those rotational torques are predominantly what's going to allow you to speed up the club and square the club face. Um, so how you put your hands on the club can change those forces and torques, but then again, you don't always need to do that. Um, there's there's other things like wrist angles, uh, whether the shaft is steep or shallow. Can they pivot? Can they rotate? Can they tilt? Can they bend? There's a lot of different matchups that you have to look at when you're, uh, you know, suggesting a change. It's not just a one. There's not a one size fits all answer. But I thought the golf swing was easy. <laughs> You just told me <laughs> no, that. It's easy to understand when sure. you spent when you, you know, understand the matchups. This many years studying yeah. all these different matchups. The game of golf itself, no, it's it's not easy. <laughs> <laughs>
We've often said in our episodes that finding the bottom of the swing is key to getting a great ball striker. I'm talking about junior golfers who are three to six years old, who are just working around the greens for a year until they get that feel. My sister Lucy did that, and I think it has given her an advantage. People have often have to often ask you, I want my two-year-old to learn how to play golf. How and where do you start? How do you answer that question for parents? I think it always has to start with making it fun. Um, I think most kids generally get into golf because their parents play, or you know, they they just want to spend time with their dad. They you know they want to go right around in the golf That's cart, true. Yeah. or they just hey, you're going to the range to hit balls. Can I go? Right. You know. And so, um, I think if you make it fun, they will take an interest in it, and then from there, that will that interest will be sparked by um, curiosity and. Um, I think if you are supportive and you <clears throat> have an opportunity to um, pre- either present information to them because you're a good player or you know what's going on or get them instruction, I think you mu- you have a much higher probability of them staying in the sport and enjoying it and getting and getting better at it. Um, you know, I don't think you're you're ever too young to take a lesson, and I know that like golf instruction gets a little bit of a bad rep sometimes people people always want to dumb things down and i've never really understood that like it, the the information doesn't have to be rocket science and it doesn't have to be technical you should be able to explain it to a three-year-old and they should you know and you should have a lot of different ways a lot of different tools in your toolbox to explain the stuff to different to different level you know age groups and levels of players so um, I think exposing kids to young, young kids to good information is the future of the game. And mm-hmm. I think that's the next generation of best players will have access to that information. They'll have, they'll be, you know, I coach kids that have grown up on TrackMan. That's all they know at this point. Like, they've known their face and path relationships since they were four years old. And so they've been hitting wedges and doing wedge combines on a TrackMan since they were six years old. So. You don't think they're going to be in college and have incredible wedge games? Absolutely right. they are. So I don't think there's any reason to, to dumb things down and, um, you know, shy away from, you know, giving them, you know, good so- a good solid foundation at an early age. And, uh, yeah, that's just my take on that. You like that starting point, though, just around the greens, <clears throat> right? Put a wedge in their hand or do, would you put them, would you do it differently? Yeah, no, I think, you know, obviously the smaller they are, the shorter distance they're going to move the ball so i think most kids start out on a putting green whacking sure. it around trying to figure out how to get it in the hole um and then as they get a little bit more interested or skilled then maybe they're chipping around the greens and that can be frustrating and then once they get more success at that maybe they're hitting wedges and so you, yeah, just, you move further wedges, and right. further away from the hole you know until they're they're playing the game so I know many, many junior golfers are spending five to eight hours a day working on their game, probably six to seven days a week if they can. I have a couple questions on that. Would you advise against that? And if so, what do you recommend? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think most of the junior golfers that I've been around and watched them spend five to eight hours at a golf course are just wasting time. Um, there it is. That's our follow-up. Like, yeah. what, what are the mistakes? Yeah, yeah what is their biggest waste of time? They're standing on the putting green. They've got their phones out. They're Snapchatting with their friends. <laughs> they're, you know, they're texting. They're, you know, they're just, it, it's a hangout. Now, that's, that's not always a bad thing, you know. It's, it's, there's worse places kids could be than the golf course. So, um, you know, we, got a jun- we have a junior program, Course Kings All-American, where we have you know, kids from all over the world, essentially, um, that come to us and, and participate in this program. And it's essentially a, a college prep placement type of program. And um, it's very structured. So how we ask them to practice, you know, it's, it's data-driven. You know, we have them tracking their stats for every single round that they're playing, whether it's a competition or a, just an 18-hole match with their friends at home. That data tells us where the gaps are in their game. <clears throat> so we explore strategies around their technique and how they practice in those areas to help them improve. So I think, you know, you don't need to necessarily spend a lot of time at the golf course to get better, but you do need to spend 
um, quality time on the areas of your game that are holding you back. So what do you think about those kids that are like spending a ton of time on there working on their game for five to eight hours? Is that, even if you are working, is that still not something you would advise? What are you concerned with? Like you're concerned with burnout? Is that why Yeah, like burnout. That? Is that something that you've seen? Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of that. Um, yeah. Kids dropping, or parents dropping their kids off at the golf course, and I'll pick you up at this time. So they're really forced to stay there. Mm-hmm. And they're not really there because, um, you know, they're being purposeful or they have a very specific plan on what they're trying to do. They're there just to kind of kill time, you know. Um, instead of, I mean, it's not unhealthy. Instead of sitting at home on the couch watching, mm-hmm. you know, TV, they're outside and outdoors and, and, and you know, playing a sport. Um, but it, it it's also creating maybe a little bit of a false illusion that they're going to have a lot of success just because they put in a lot of hours. And that just simply isn't the case. Go back to that Course Kings for one second because I saw there's like a, it's called All-American and there's an application process. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially, it's asking kind of what what path you're in. Are you the player? Are you a coach? Are you a parent? Yeah. Um, anyone? Is it an open application? Is there a requirement prior to? You're just looking at, at trying to offer a program for individuals that is efficient it, and it has data supporting it and it gives them a direction to improve. Correct? Yeah. It's it's open for any um, any kid that wants to play college golf, and so we're trying to target. Uh, an age group that increases our probability of placing them in college. So I, I would say probably 13 to 16 or 17 years sure. old is kind of the sweet spot. Um, if we got some younger than that, it would be, you know, it'd be great as well. But thir- that's those are the, that's the age group that's going to benefit the most from it, and it's it's very involved. Um, there's a lot of uh, interaction with you know me and my other coaches and uh, it's very specific in how we attack your technique and you know improve those areas of your game how we structure help you structure practice um, scheduling for tournaments pre- tournament preparation breaking how much down of it's golf in course. person so um, quite a bit actually so they come to Memphis um, one time once every quarter and they spend four hours with us in person, one on one on one, every quarter. Um, we have weekly calls with them set up with every member where we touch base with them, and then we have a monthly Zoom lesson with them. So that they'll upload, they'll send me swings, and I can upload them into like Analyzer and do a live Zoom with them. So it's that serves a great um, filler between when I'm seeing them in person and the next time. And we can get a lot done that way. Should a junior golfer strive to build a neutral swing or be content with a homegrown swing and just work with it? <laughs> I guess that all depends on what your definition of a neutral swing is. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the day, every swing is homegrown, right? It's, you, you feel it. Um, you, you you have an awareness and a sense of where the club is and where your body is and what you're doing and you see the shot and the result, and then you make adjustments from there. So, um, again, I, I don't think that um, it, it's a hard, fast rule that at a certain age you shouldn't seek out instruction. Uh, at a certain age you shouldn't video your swing. Um, I think, you know, coaching and um, everything gets a bad rap when sometimes when I hear people talk about that. Um, and, and I'm all for information. I'm all for having the answers, you know, to the quiz. I'm all for exploring new strategies to do things in a, in a more efficient manner. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, I'm not really answering your question. Yeah, but what is neutral for you then? Because you should define it uh, just in your position. I feel like I don't maybe even, it's not a word you use often. I don't. Yeah, I don't even know what that means to be honest. New, neutral. Um, maybe it's just uh, like you know. Victor Hovland is this swing neutral? I would say. <laughs> I would say probably not. <laughs> okay, so I mean, just in the fact that, and I think we're going to get there. Like, let's go to Victor Hovland's swing for a second. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if there's somebody that has more of a closed face in in the history of the tour than him all the way throughout, right? And so, a player like him. If he starts losing it left, and, and he comes to you and says, "Hey, what 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 are we going to do?" 
Because yeah. I would think that would be a problem occasionally for him. Yes. Yeah, so, so it's actually not because wow. there's, most people don't know what they're looking at. They see a top of the backswing position where the wrist has a lot of flexion and the face appears to be closed. But what they don't understand is the second that he starts to transition from there, there are torques acting on the club that is actually opening his club face. So if a 10 is the most shut and zero is square, at the top of the backswing, he's a 10. And then it's going nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, zero, right at impact. In fact, through the ball, he's applying a torque on the club. It's actually opening the face. And so that is why he, you know, he, he has supreme control over his, his ball flight. That's why he is one of the best iron players in the world. Um, just because a face is open at the top doesn't mean it's going to be shut at or open at impact. Just because it's shut at the mm-hmm. top doesn't mean it's going to be shut at impact. And so there, there's the, the tilts of the body, the rotation rates of the body, the hand path, how the club is shallowing or steepening in transition, all those things, I call them micro moves. All those micro moves are changing the face's orientation throughout the swing. And so... You know, it's not as simple as, oh, I'm slicing the ball. I'm going to go make my top of the backswing look like Victor Hovland. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not as, you know, if you look at someone like, gosh, who, um, you know, there, there's golfers with wildly open club faces at the top who are hitting draws every single shot. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's something that we just can't wrap our minds around. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because her face was really open, and we were not hitting a draw, I promise you. I was promising ice cream when she did hit a draw, and yeah. I felt confident. I mean, have you guys ever looked at Will's Alatoris' swing sure, slow down? Yeah. I mean, the club face goes, you know, his wrist goes towards extension, the face twists open, and then bang, down by the ball, it's just lined up beautifully. And, and you know, again, there's little micro moves going on there that is – well above the level of, a, of most coaches that are going to get in there and dig in and try to fix or tinker with that. You know, his genius as a player, his, his, his proprioceptive ability just overrides all that. And, you know, obviously he knows the little minutia in his swing and so how he, you he advise, all that. You advise coaches all the time, right, and give them a nice outline for, you know, what we should be looking for. Mm-hmm. How do you – hold them back from trying to correct all of those things that make a player uniquely gifted. It's just simply trying to educate them on the matchups. So you can have a, a certain flaw in your swing and match it up with another move and it works. It just functions beautifully. Um, And so, you know, understanding the beauty in those matchups and not trying to necessarily force feed every player to look aesthetically a certain way you'll have a lot more success as a coach because you'll be able to help a lot more players. Who are the hardest workers you have ever coached? And can you describe their grind in as much detail? Hmm. Let's see. I would say uh, Aaron Aaron Wise works really hard. Um, the thing I like about what he does is he's very he very meticulously plans everything. So he's got... When he hits the golf course on a Monday or Tuesday, he's got a very specific agenda for the work that he's trying to get in that day. It's not just, let's just go spend nine hours at the course and fill up a day with a bunch of stuff. It's, you know, there's a plan for for every single day. Um, Patrick Rogers, again, hard worker, um, you know, not afraid to get on the range and and work through a session or or spend spend time, you know, he'll grind on the putting green working through his, his, you know, five foot drills around the holes for sometimes an hour, hour and a mm-hmm. half, you know, uh, until he gets it right, till he wins the drill. So yeah, those, those guys, uh, Davis Riley's a really, you know, super hard worker. Um, I've, I've coached, I've been lucky and I've coached a bunch of guys that are not. How about on the other side, like uh, guys that might not be out there putting the work in, but you saw like a natural gift or talent. And now these individuals, whether we name them or not, that's up to you. <laughs> but like maybe they actually outperformed any level that you could have imagined for them because they didn't really put the time in, or maybe the ceiling was a little bit higher that, that they didn't, they didn't quite get there. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't really want to use names on this one, but I've I've worked with a bunch of tour players who were just supremely talented, and um, 
a lot of times that talent, you know, things came very easy for them. I'll just say it that way. And so, you know, they didn't necessarily have to work hard on, you know, hitting balls on the range. They could just do it. And so when that's the case, um, you know, <laughs> the work ethic isn't sometimes there. And, you know, that even though they're a great player, that might potentially hold them back in, so, in certain areas of their game. But, yeah, there's plenty of cases where, you know, the talent is just so at such a high level that they don't necessarily need to work super hard. Data-supported information moved you into a, a situation where you felt like you could help 100% of the players you've coached. When you look at the numbers on TrackMan and Foresight, which ones do you pay the most attention to, and where do you go from there? Um, again, I think it's a little different for every player. That there's a the reason why are they coming to me? Are they trying to hit the mm -hmm. ball further? Um, for there, I'm looking at you know clubhead speed, ball speed, um, centeredness of contact. Um, are they trying to tighten their dispersion and their pattern? So again, there I'm looking more at uh, club face, club path relationship. Are they trying to hit the ball higher? Are they trying to flight the ball? In that case, I might be looking at their angle of attack, you know, um, and and to see how they're, um, you know. Creating, creating their ball flight. Um, so it's it's a little bit different for, for each of those players, but I'd say I named a few there that are probably getting looked at by me in almost every every session where I use TrackMan. I mean, go back <clears throat> to when you weren't using TrackMan and, and you were saying you could you basically help a third of the people that came, came about. If they maybe fit your pattern that you were coaching at that time, do you remember that pattern? Yeah, you know, I would say it was – not necessarily so much um, so much so because um, I wasn't using TrackMan. Um, I think it was more along the lines of I had a certain vision in my head or a model, if you will, of, of what an aesthetically pleasing golf swing mm -hmm. looked like to me. And that was kind of the way that I was taught. Like, video your swing, put it on the TV, draw all the lines on there, and put you beside Tiger Woods or... Adam Scott, and, and then you just tried to mimic those swings. I mean, the, the silliness of that is just you know, astonishing when I think back on it. But, um, you know, that was kind of a generation of, of teaching, to be quite honest. And, you know, when you think about it, how do people get into teaching? Um, generally, they go out and they play really well, and they're good players, but their competitive career comes to an end, so they get into teaching and a lot of times they teach what they felt or what they tried to do that gave them success. And you know, that works a lot of times. Um, for me, I felt like, <clears throat> you know, when I, when I was teaching more of a model or teaching more of a, a specific way to swing the club, I just didn't see the results. I saw some players get better and some players kind of stay the same. And then maybe I even ruined, you know, I, I hurt some players. Mm -hmm. So for me, the challenge was, just continuing education, trying to study, do the research, understand um, all these different matchups, and and understand all, you know all these different technical aspects of the swing to where I felt like I could fit, I could help anybody, you know, um, and and that also led me to studying other parts of the game like short game and putting because um, I didn't feel I never felt good about being just a swing coach. Like somebody comes to me because they need to get better at putting, I felt like I needed I needed to have the knowledge base to do that. Or, you know, I'd go out and play with a player, and I'd be like, "This guy can't chip." You know, he's he he's a great ball striker, he's a good putter, but if he misses a green, he's in trouble. And so, just developing that knowledge base to be able to problem solve around the greens, I just feel like it's it's helped me be a better coach and be a little bit more well rounded. You just had a lesson right now, right? And and you worked short game. So what was that focus? So for, I've worked with this player, you know, for a number of years. It was basically just revisiting his fundamentals. Um, a lot of it, a lot of short game is setup, and when you can get into some bad uh, setup alignments, it makes contact, you know, difficult. So for this player, he had a little bit too much side bend, spine tilt at address causing some some low point issues and when a good player has low point issues the way that they solve them is they just start pushing the handle forward at impact so he got in a situation where 
really a, he could only hit one shot, and that was kind of a low, hot mm-hmm. shot. He was really struggling kind of trying to elevate the ball, especially, you know, it was kind of wet and grainy out there. And, you know, it'll expose you pretty quickly if, you know, if you can't line the shaft up and you can't use the balance and you, you can't control the bottom of the, the swing mm-hmm. arc. So for him, it was just getting him back to um, – how he used to, you know, usually chips. He's a, he's got a great short game, so it's, you know, finding the flaw, the flaw in that. Always is, set up, Allie. It's always <laughs> the setup. Yeah, generally, when the club's moving the slowest, it's mostly related to setup. Yeah. How do we speed up player development? Some players make gains in months, and others take years. In your experience, how can players get better faster? You hate this one? Man, she's firing. I did told you, man. Let's get a snack. <laughs> let's, let's get a sandwich in you real quick. We got chips right here. Nobody will mind the crunch. But for real, like these questions are impossible to answer. No, nah, these are great questions. And these are the, this is the kind of stuff that I think about uh, 24-7. Even when I'm not on the golf course or not on the range, um, I'm always kind of challenging myself. You know, I used to film all my lessons. And literally go home at night and watch them. And my wife would be like, what are you doing? And I was like, yeah, I screwed this lesson up today. I was talking about this, and this guy had no idea what I was talking about. And so um, back to your question of how do we get uh, better? How do we get players to develop faster? Well, stuff like this is is critical, you know. Um, you know, the, the, the readiness of information that's out there the the availability of that information is it's amazing you can be a better player or a better coach right now than any time in history because there's so many people that are willing to share their thoughts and ideas there are so many people out there doing uh research Uh, we've got phds you know in biomechanics that are out there looking you know looking past where we've been you know to the future in, in, in the golf swing and in other aspects of the game and so that sharing that information uh, making it readily available uh, being willing to go out and, and and ask questions and you know shadow other coaches and, and things of that nature from a player's perspective um, it can also be a little bit dangerous because you know you can go yeah. down that that information rabbit hole pretty quickly. We say getting deep in the sauce around us. We say get deep in that sauce and it just gets dangerous. Yeah. I mean, it it, it can, if you let it. Um, So because the tendency is to do what you just originally described, which I personally thought was a good play was, you know, mimic and, and try to create or find an individual who's doing it at a high level that kind of looks a little bit like your player and figure out a way to maybe model them after you know, an Ellie Corda or something like mm-hmm. that, who's as beautiful of a swinger of a golf club as you can find right now. So, you know, I think most people are doing those side by sides, like with Tiger still. Yeah. And and you laugh at it, <laughs> but I mean, I just for for whatever reason, for I guess the common golf junkie, it makes it still makes perfect sense. It does, but <clears throat> you have to take that into context and, and say, this is one of the most supreme athletes in the history of all sports. What in the world makes me think I can move like that or, or emulate what he's doing? I say it all the time that 95% of all golfers should swing like LPGA Tour players. They should swing like women because they move the club about as fast as those LPGA Tour players do. And so how they move their body, how they rotate, how they align the shaft, that would serve you know, instead of leaning the shaft and lagging, you know, the handle and, and, and hitting the ground really hard, 95% of people, people who play this game have no business doing any of those things. And so I, th- I think, you know, back to your original question, how do players get better faster? Take advantage of the information that's out there. Be willing to seek out a coach. And when you do so, you know, do your homework in the beginning. It's it. Nothing drives me crazier than watching kids bounce around from coach to coach to coach. No coach has the magic pill. No 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 coach has the secret sauce. The bottom line is: Are they willing to make a time investment in you? And are you willing to make a time investment in them? Do you believe in their information? And are you willing to put in the work? You know that they're asking you to do to get better. And it and along that process you're going to find a couple of things that are fundamental to your success. And, and it could be, 
when I make this move in my swing, I hit it the best. And, and just knowing and understanding what that move is and then trying to preserve and protect that. Like I say that to players all the time on the PGA Tour. This little move you're making right here, don't ever let anybody talk you out of changing this because this is why you're on the PGA Tour, this this little move. And they might not even like it. And they might find it, they found it on their own They too. might be looking at it on video going, why in the world does this do I do this, you know, right here in my swing? And I'm like, you really want me to answer that? You're doing it because you did this in your swing. And then you did this in your swing, and this is a domino effect. But it's serving you in a very functional way. That's exactly. So we had that kind of written down here where we were talking about that natural body movement and creating that authenticity in a swing. Um, and, and like you're describing, I think that's probably a common failure in most coaches or parents that they just don't have the understanding to find a matchup for that really unique movement mm -hmm. and so uh the, the the teaching that you do i assume it's out there i think there's about five million clips of you available on youtube <laughs> or wherever else you want to go find it uh getting to the understanding of how can i use this specific thing that my kid seems to like to do that we're actually winning with and then make that a, a part of the swing, but also use it effectively to get better. Um, because one of the questions here, and, and, and some of them just don't work for us anymore right now, based on, because <laughs> one of the things that, that uh, a buddy of ours really wanted to know was like, okay, look, let's, let's break down the best, best ball strikers on tour, right? Like, let's look at approach irons. Let's look at optimizing drivers. Let's talk about flighted wedges. <laughs> let's go really into detail in all of these different areas. Let's pick a player for each one of these things, right? And then let's focus on that and become become that. And you're going to say, you're going to smack this headset off my head and say, don't do that. No, I'm, I, I'm exactly going to say, don't do that. I'm going to say, have your kid hit a shot and show you a ball flight. And then have them be very one-dimensional and hit that same shot over and over and over again. Once they can hit it solid and make it curve the same way every time, then teach them how far the ball is going. Do that with some type of measuring device, a track man, a flight scope. And if you don't have that, get out in the field and hit a ball with a laser and a rangefinder and tell them, okay, your seven iron went this far, your pitching wedge went this far. And you'd be surprised how the more one-dimensional you can get them to be, the better, the, the higher their skill level is going to be and the, the more they're going to dominate at their age group. How about putting, though? Same? Yeah, because Lucy, she has this tendency to pull her hands inside through, you know, and it looks like she's slicing the ball. Like even on the, <laughs> even on the putting, she the, the girl makes putts. She makes short putts. She rolls everything pretty close. I mean, like everything inside me wants to make these changes, but you're speaking my language right now because I'm like the athlete that says there's a there's a reason why this kid's successful. It's because they've got something. Like look, look putting is simple. It's even simpler than the full swing. I mean, there's only three skills. Can they read a green? Can they start the ball where they intend to? And they can, can they control the speed of that golf ball? So all of your practice and all the time that you spend on a putting green should be centered around those three skills. And so Lucy might be taking the putter back inside. But guess what? Did she hit it on her? If you put a little gate down there and tell her to roll the ball through it, can she do that? If she can't do that, then we need to help her build a stroke pattern that she can do that consistently. But if she takes it back inside and rolls it through the gate every time, it doesn't matter that she takes it back inside. And so I've learned the best players in the world aren't doing a lot of times what they think they're doing. Mm -hmm. They might not read left to, put, left to right putts high enough. So what do they do? They take it back outside and they pull it up the slope and make a bad stroke. They make a stroke that they wouldn't normally make on a straight putt. But they do that on left to right putts. It's instinctual. And so just understanding some of those tendencies will make you a better player when you, when you know what you're doing. So when you analyze players with this incredible room, right? We've got sim labs. Yes. We've got seven track mans. There's 35 <laughs> TVs on the wall. We've got a Penny Hardaway signed jersey up, which we talked about. And Penny's going to have to hang out one day on the course with you, Allie. Um, she don't even get it. Like I tried to I said, do you know who that is? I don't know. Said, okay, but but when you say real versus feel, and you show the real, and they say to you, "Oh, I don't feel that." How often does that come out of their mouth? All the time, every oh, yeah, every player, yeah. every player. 
Okay, so Fe- feels very subjective, you know. Tiger says feels in the hands, right? Everything mm-hmm. you should feel everything is. What does he mean by that? It means that's where he feels when he executes a shot. He feels in his hands, and no one's ever going to argue with him because he's the goat, you know. So, um, and 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 he he can demonstrate it, right? He can say, "I'm going to feel this in my hands and hit this shot," and does it. And on the next swing or chip or whatever, he says, "I'm going to feel this, and it's going to do something different," and it does. So, yeah, he he, what he's describing is, you know. Proprioception. How do we get the, the real and the feel to match up a little bit more? Do we have to do we have to have a new understanding for what it should feel like? A hundred percent. But you, you, in any time you're trying to uh, close that gap between feel and real, you got to have a feedback loop. So you look at all these TVs in here and these cameras, it's video. So every time a player hits a shot here, and I tell them to do something different, well, they they, they have an idea of what that different should feel like and they do it and then they look up at the video and go that wasn't it i'm gonna feel something different Hmm. and they on the next ball feel something different and they look up and go okay that was it that was me in the right spot at the top of the backswing so the feedback loop is how you know back to her original question like how do we advance golfers quicker it's with with the feedback loop it's with the technology it's with the measuring and not guessing and you're not going to hear many coaches today say just go dig it out of the dirt you know, go go out there and hit balls for the next six hours till you your hands start bleeding. Why? You got a hitting bay like this with all this technology in here. And I can measure you in 3D and know in 10 seconds how much tilting you're doing and turning you're doing, whether it's enough or not. And we can get to the root cause a lot faster. Hmm. Well, that sounds easy. <laughs> uh, we've got um, only a little bit of time left. I think I think there's a few of the things we wanted to just go through real quick with you. What are we making mistakes with? The speed sticks, those super speed sticks, do you believe in those? Because if, if you have a problem with your you know, release patterns, potentially could cause more issues for you. Uh, we know that we want to swing faster, hit the ball further, and I think that's kind of one of the most important variables across the entire game, especially in a junior game when you're driving greens, when you're in like 7 years old, to mm-hmm. 10 years old. Those kids win. So what do you think about those? Is, that, is, there, is there anything else specifically to creating more speed or generating speed that you would encourage uh, parents to start looking into doing? You know, I think ge- general fitness for kids is definitely where you want to start. Um, I say that I'm a big proponent of kids playing multiple sports. I think the athleticism that they develop in, you know, basketball or the strength and power that they develop in, in football or baseball um, or, or volleyball are all very useful in the golf swing. So I, I would definitely encourage them to play a variety of sports. Um, you know, specifically to your question about the speed sticks, um, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of them. Um, I do think that swinging a stick and swinging a golf club from a sequencing standpoint are quite different. And um, uh, there's a place for everything, right? There's a place for speed sticks. There's a place for, you know, squats. There's a there's a place for, um, you know, just general, you know, physical activities for every age group. I mean, obviously, we're not going to put a six-year-old in a squat rack, but every one of my tour players is in a squat rack. So, by, you know, by that definition, there, there needs to be a strength base that's developed. They need to be taught and trained how to, how to, you know, build, you know, lean muscle mass and become more explosive athletes. That's ultimately how they're going to hit the ball further. Now, swinging fast starts with trying to swing fast. So I like to see, you know, kids try to ramp it up and try to swing as hard as they can. Um, I can teach them to hit it straighter later. <laughs> uh, if you don't build or develop speed at an early age, it's very difficult to do it late in life. Um, exhibit a you know right here so um you know but kids that develop explosive nature at an early age that speed generally will last last a lifetime you don't slow down they speed up as they're hitting their their peak sort of developmental period so um i like to see them try to swing their driver fast um both in practice and on the golf course um 
And just accept the failure, right? Because I think that there's a tendency when they do start trying to amp up miss hit is much more common. They're going to yeah. see some bad results and it's going to deter them from continuing that process to build speed. Yeah. I mean, just understand the math of it all. You know, the guy that leads the tour in driving accuracy is not making much money on the PGA Tour. But the guy that's, hit, that's hitting it further than everybody else generally is. And there's a, there's a nice balance in there somewhere where you'll find the top 20 players in the world. You know, um, athleticism and speed will always be a competitive advantage, and there's no way to legislate that out of the sport. All right, so two players, this is it. I just wanted to go through this. This is my last one, then we'll get you out of here because you got to eat some food for the first time <laughs> in probably two weeks. <laughs> All right, you got to pick two players on tour whose body movements and swing types are complete opposites. So I don't know if you're going to be able to come up with this quickly, but <laughs> there could be players you've, that, that you've coached or just ones that you've seen. And I want, I want you to be able to tell us, like, as a coach, what makes them work, like what those matchups are, because I have a hard time understanding you when you talk matchups. Yeah. So I'd really like to gain a better perspective of that. You know, I, you know, looking at trying to help my own daughters and, and, and sharing this information out. I think that you say it so easily because it makes so much sense to you. So let's look at look at some matchups that exist in very unique swings and, and talk about that. Get technical, if you would. Yeah. Um, let's see. Here's two great swings that come to mind. So um, if you look at Justin Thomas' swing, right? I love, I love his action. I love pretty much everything he does as it relates to moving a golf ball. So um, more of an older, what people would call an old school golf swing. So in the backswing, not a lot of depth to his hand path, not a lot of turning of his body. His arm plane is very, very elevated. So, you know, you could say his hands are really high above his head. In transition, what separates him from, you know, most of the people you see out on the drive range that are slicing it is his unique ability to add early right side bend. And that's what shallows the club. So he can go from this high arm position, add a beautiful amount of side bend in transition, and get the club on, you know, essentially on plane and hit every shot, you know, known to man, high, low, fade, or draw. He's, you know, very multi-dimensional with, with his ball flight. And, and even with the longer clubs, he'll hit low drivers or high drivers. You know, he'll hit stinger five woods and high high ones. And so, you know, you saw a lot of that this week at the Players' Championship from him. So his his swing relies upon enough side bend to keep him functional and keep him shallow and, and from the inside. Where someone like uh, Rory has a much lower <clears throat> arm path, hand path at the top of the backswing, the left arm would match the shoulder plane a bit more. In transition, the trail arm gets a little bit behind him. He's coming very much from the inside, but he has a very dynamic sort of rotary pivot. He can just sort of whip the club around the corner really quickly. And that technique, <clears throat> not only that, but his just explosiveness that he has as an athlete, combined with that technique, is why he's the preeminent driver of the golf ball in the game and probably the best at hitting any long club high and far. But it's also why he potentially struggles a bit with his wedges. So there's always a, a little bit of a trade-off in, you know, the skill sets that these players have. And there's a fine line for, well, when do I start changing my swing to become a little bit better wedge player? You know, it's a, kind of a dangerous road there. Um, so th there's two swings that are wildly different right. when you look at them at the top and um, can both do – you know, magical things with a golf ball. That's why he's the best. <laughs> what I tell you, Allie. Two years ago, you said the number one player isn't coming to you for a lesson anytime soon. A lot has changed since then, and I was shaking my head when I heard you say that. I think it's safe to say the world number one just might already be taking lessons from you, and many more will be lining up behind him. Your teaching is impacting more players than you even realize it. Realize. Coaches, dads, players you don't even know are looking for you for guidance. That's an impact you cannot even imagine when you left a GM job at Target to hustle some lessons for 50 bucks an hour in Las Vegas. 
Can you even imagine what you will be doing in the next two to five years in this game? We can't wait to hear all about it when we see you down the road. Thanks for joining us today and teeing us off for season three of Grow the Grind, 350 yards right down the middle of the fairway. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, this is my, my pleasure. I had a blast with you guys. These are some, some tough questions. I, I tried to <laughs> warn you, this girl doesn't quit. I mean, wow. We've been staying just outside of Memphis in the Graceland Guest House Hotel. We got to head back, grab our stuff, and say goodbye to our neighbor, Elvis, and drive back to the cold. I think we brought the Chicago March down here. We need to move. Thanks for listening, and always remember, golf is great, the grind makes it greater. That's right. Thanks again. <laughs>